Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So uh, last week, I believe I told you that uh, we had another miracle story happen, and, and actually, um, this isn't it, but we had another one happen. So we're going to hear that other story I told you about in a week or two here, and uh, I wanted to have Elsie come up and just talk, because uh, I know Sharon's been spending some time uh, leading the children to teach them how to pray for each other, and Elsie had an amazing experience with the children last week praying for her, so would you share that with us? So after um, Sharon had finished teaching, um, she asked the kids to just wait on the Lord, and um, then she asked them to tell her who needed prayer. So we were praying for one of the other children, and the day before, uh, I got a really sore throat, and I broke my wrist about a year ago, and my wrist really ached. And in the time I was preparing for leading worship on Sunday night at um, the prayer Bible study group, and I was like concerned because you know I wouldn't be able to play the guitar and I wouldn't be able to sing. So I said, "Well, can you guys pray for me?" And at that point in time, they were so excited because they really felt the presence of the Lord, and you know, they kind of their hands were warm, and they were told that that's a sign of the, the Lord working through you if your hand gets warm. So they laid it on my throat and prayed. And, uh, and it felt better, and they took their hands away and said, no, put it back, it's not done yet. And so they prayed some more, and um, they were so excited, and then they said, I said, well, can you pray for my wrist? And at that time, you know, everybody was on top of me, praying and putting their hands everywhere they could, and, and my hands got better, and I was able to lead worship that evening. That's awesome, isn't it? Great. I think one of the... I think one of the more beautiful things for this, too, is Elsie and her husband, Vim, was here the first service. I don't see him this service unless he's hiding in a different part now. Um, and uh, uh, he, a few months back, received a bad diagnosis, and they're walking through their own thing. And I just think it's really cool that God would come to her in a simple healing of her sore throat and wrist and let her, let her know that he's with her. And the other is yet to be determined, but would you join me for just a second in praying for her and Vim? Lord, we ask that you would continue to be at work. Lord, we agree with all the prayers that have been prayed before, and we add ours to that. And Lord, ask that you'd bring healing to them, that you would walk them through this time, uh, and your goodness would be present with them the entire way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love it uh, that our kids are learning to experience God and pray. I think it's so encouraging and beautiful to see that happening on. I, I love watching kids. I love listening to them and their expressions of faith. And for many of the kids, when you talk to them about their faith or when you see them engaged in that, it's, you know, what, what's the phrase we always used? Childlike faith and trust. You get to see that in real life. It is so cool. This it's a simple expectation of seeing God show up. It's fun to hear stories like that where kids take that risk and they see God show up like in Elsie's case. And Jesus invites us to that same kind of childlike faith, that same kind of trust in God as our good Father who has our backs, who's always with us, who always brings us through whatever we're facing. And, and within this series, we're talking about courageous choices, but we've been talking about courage. And, and when we have childlike trust, isn't it true that for child, a person who has childlike trust in a good father, that courage is a whole lot easier, isn't it? We don't have to muster it up. We don't have to 
try to gut it out and figure out where we come up with it. It just is almost there, isn't it, when we have that childlike trust. This series, Courageous Choices, is, is about that. In the first two weeks, we talked about this courage idea through the idea of learning to trust God's promises and learning to trust His love. We're in the study of the book of Joshua. It's about the man and the book written after him and the people in that book. And, and we've been able to see how Israel made some good and some bad choices, Right? And God showed up in amazing ways in the good choices. And, and, and when they rejected God and made some bad choices, He still forgave them. He still loved them. He still cared for them. But we particularly have already seen in this series one big bad choice they made that left them 40 years more in the desert and a whole generation missing out on the promise God had for them. See, our choices in life reflect our faith. And our choices determine our future, don't they? Today, the lessons we're going to see from Joshua and the Israelites are about how God wants to help us make choices to step into the miracles that God has waiting for each and every one of us, together and individually. See, God wants us each to learn to step into the miracles He has for us. Faith, this thing of being a follower of Jesus, what we call being a Christian, is not just about a good moral upbringing. It's not just about having a good teaching and a place for our kids to grow up in a good environment, although those are good, those are important. It's about relationship with the God who created everything that exists. And while we can't conclusively prove God exists with rational arguments alone, encounters with Him and His power over and over again when we experience Him as being real, we begin to bank that experience. And it gives us this level of relational proof and confidence that is unmatched to any other kind of confidence that He is indeed God and He is indeed real. See, as we believe God uh, wants to lead us, uh, for example, in our careers, and that He wants to give us a meaningful life, as the Bible teaches us He wants to, we start to bank experience as we see God prove true decision after decision that truth in our lives. And even through difficult experiences in our career, we learn that His goodness is there, right? And we bank that experience. And as we believe God wants to heal and we pray for that, and we begin to see more of that happen and as we pray for people. Maybe it's you getting healed, or maybe you see a friend healed. You begin, to, you begin to begin to bank that experience, right? And you begin to trust His promises even more in your life. Now, some of us have more experience banked than others, right? So some of us with lots of experience come to church, and we sing songs about God's faithfulness, And as we're singing, it's not just words, but it's specific memories that come to mind where we remember stories where God showed up in healing or provision or or whatever it was that He showed up in our lives. And some of us need to, as we come together, the other aspect of the beauty of our time is we share our individual stories and we have stories together as a church even where God showed up, where He helps us. And when we share those stories with other, with each other, it helps you, it helps me, it helps all of us remain faithful to make the choices God wants us to make, even the scary ones, the ones that don't make sense, so that we make the choices to step into the miracles God wants each of us to experience and live in. Now, the reason I asked Zach, welcome, you guys. Technical issues, we can get them solved whenever we can. It's perfectly fine. Uh, the reason I asked Zach to sing the song this morning that he and Katie wrote is because that's really part of the beauty of their story. 
And I wanted you to experience part of one of the gifts that God had given them, and now it it becomes a gift for us because he's our worship leader here. And like Zach said, he didn't want to sing the song. He wanted to leave it for like six months. And I said, no, I insisted, because he doesn't want worship to ever be about him. But I love the song. And more importantly, that song talks about the greatness of God. It talks about Jesus and His kingdom coming on earth. And it affected, when Jesus came and His kingdom comes on earth, it affected everything. It introduced more visible, tangible, divine power and healing and miracles. And Jesus Himself says He wants us to experience that same power and experience more of His kingdom coming in our own world, in our own experience. And the truth we're going to talk about today is this, that worshiping together brings us into God's miraculous presence more readily. Say, we're looking at today's historical count in Joshua, and it's going to illustrate some choices that we need to make as we approach worship that allows God's miraculous presence to actually be experienced for his kingdom to break into our midst. Isn't it true that we all come, people come to church uh, and join and stay for church for lots of reasons, right? We gather as people worshiping God and, and, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's for one reason, sometimes it's for another. But the one of the most intended powerful purposes that God has for us is that when we gather as people worshiping God, something special takes place when we're together. Something about us being together in worship brings God's presence out more visibly, and more tangibly, more often. And a question that I'm going to pose to myself and to all of us today, is that what you come to church expecting? Is what you come to church expecting, are you planning on being a part of giving and receiving in worship and in prayer that presence and power of God? The account we're talking about today spans two chapters in Joshua, Joshua 3 and 4. So let me just get us set up and review in case you weren't here last week of what we've looked at so far. The Israelites have just at this point finished 40 years wandering in the desert after they refused to obey God the first time to go into the promised land. Uh, and so now they're back at the Jordan River. They're facing the same decision they faced 40 years ago. At this point already, two spies have been sent over. They've been in Jericho and they've come back. And Jericho is this highly strategic fortified city that, that, that protects two of the major ford, the, ford, the fords, the crossings of the river. And, uh, and the spies have returned with a message that God's miracles of the past 40 years, including some that recently happened in the past couple months with the Israelites, uh, have left the people in the la- land in awe of God and afraid of the people of Israel because they recognize God is with the people of Israel. Joshua 3 picks up the story the morning after the spies return, and it says this. Early in the morning, Josh and all the Israelites set out from... I've tried saying that word a dozen different ways. (laughs) And it always comes out bad. Jeremy, when we were talking about this passage, just said, I dare you to read this scripture. <laughs> I have to admit, though, I have told the story about the fact that my hometown during high school years was named Keister, Minnesota. This word makes me feel really good about my hometown's name, right? It's a good place they left. So they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. <laughs> After three days, I mean, I've tried to say it with like, you know, Russian accent, German accent. It comes out the same. <laughs> so, you know. Let's keep going, sorry. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. 
When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, about 3,000 meters, between you and the Ark, and do not go near it. And Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. See, the people are about to walk into the fulfillment of a national dream that's been around for 600 years at least. And the preparation for walking into that dream is to consecrate themselves with a promise that God is going to show up and do amazing things among them as a people together. Now, probably most of us don't have a lot in our life that relates to the magnitude of this moment for them. So maybe we need to think about some different things. Maybe we need to think about the days right before you went public with the launch of your business or a new product line that was really, really a big, momentous, massive change. Or maybe maybe you need to think about the days right before the birth of your first child. Or maybe you can think back on the days right before you left to go to college and how big that felt. Or maybe, maybe for you it would be graduation and right before you left college and were going into a job wondering what life was really going to be like. Or, or maybe for some of you, you've had experiences where you felt like God asked you to do something that in your mind was intimidating. It was really big. And it was tough to imagine that he would ask you to do that. Something really big, lots of work, lots of change, lots of impact, lots of threat and hope, all mixed up into one big moment in your life. So if you thought of a moment in your life that even comes close to that, what were those days like leading up to that moment for you? What did you spend your time doing? I, I realize maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe you're all different than me. Maybe you're more spiritual than me and you're a whole lot more relaxed about life than I am. But when I have faced big moments like that, even if I have all my ducks in a row, I still find myself most naturally responding in big moments with being busy. Crossing T's, dotting I's, working really hard, preparing, double-checking it. It takes a lot of effort to relax, to stop, to focus on something else in those moments of life. And there's a little bit of that busyness going on in Joshua because, I mean, some of us just simply necessary, right, in big moments. I mean, you see the officers going throughout the camp of Israel saying, be ready to move. We're going to leave and go into the promised land. We're going to cross the Jordan River. So start preparing right now. But the emphasis you see in the text isn't on the busyness of preparing for the logistics and the things that need to be done. The focus is on this idea of taking time to consecrate yourselves. In fact, I would submit to you that the next two and a half chapters in Joshua are actually all about what consecration looks like to begin to live out a worshipful encounter with God. And our choice to consecrate ourselves is a big part of that choice that allows us to step into the miracle that God has planned for us, intends for us as people. See, consecration most simply means this preparing oneself to focus on and encounter God. It's this intentional thing that we do to focus and expect God to show up. So the question, anybody here want to 
do something amazing or be a part of something amazing and miraculous in your work or your family or your marriage or your school or your life, then the lesson that Joshua is teaching us and God's teaching us here is to prepare yourself, to consecrate yourself, to live a life of worship with God, expecting Him to show up. Because worshiping together brings us into God's miraculous presence. See, God is talking to the people through Joshua, and he says, consecrate yourselves. It's not yourself. It's plural. It's together. Worship together. Gather together. Prepare yourselves together to encounter me. And when you do, you'll see amazing things. So here's a question that came to mind when I read this for myself, and maybe it'll fit for you too. How do you prepare yourself for our time together? As a gathered people, worshiping each Sunday or when you get together with your small group, how do you prepare yourself? In the Bible, most habits of consecration uh, that are depicted involve a mix of a number of things. They usually have a personal reflection where we ask ourselves, how am I doing, how, where am I falling short and living right in right relationship with God and other people? And as a result, there's always a portion of confession of our sin and, and our shortcomings and asking for forgiveness and consecration. But there's also then this aspect of thankfulness you see throughout the Bible when, when the people are consecrating themselves for the grace of God, for His forgiveness for the way he's proven himself to show up in our life in the past. And within that, there's always the sense of humbling yourself in worship of God by giving glory to him for all that you are and all that you have accomplished, recognizing that you haven't done anything on your own. Everything you have and everything you've done has been a gift for you from God. And there's this worshiping within that that begins to exclaim how great God is and how good and awesome and powerful and wise He is. And there's this essence as well of, of beginning to listen for God and what He wants to say to you and what He might be leading you and to do in the next step of your life. But all those things can be done privately, right? We can do all those things on our own. But God in this text is inviting us to do and prepare ourselves to worship together. He's inviting us to do many of those things together. And at the very least, he's inviting us to do those private things to prepare us for when we do gather together to come with a different focus and a different attitude. And I think if we're going to really get what God wants, us out of, wants for us out of this text, we have to ask ourselves more questions about that together time if we're going to catch that. So here's a question. How do you view church? What we're doing right now, together in this moment. Are you here to fulfill a religious duty so you can feel good about the fact that you did the right godly thing this week and you can check off a box? Are you here to enjoy the inspiration of the music and how that makes you feel? Are you here to, to hopefully get something out of the message and, and that would be meaningful to you right now? Or are you primarily here to worship God and to encounter His presence? You can be here for all of those reasons. And all those reasons have a measure of meaningfulness and there's in the right way they can all be good. But what Joshua is instructing the people here to do and how they consecrate themselves together is to be focused on worshiping God and to primarily be motivated and focused on encountering God, speaking to us, and working in other people's lives when we gather. 
See, when that consecrated, prepared focus to worship and encounter God is not the overarching drive when we come together, we start to evaluate things primarily by secondarily, secondary issues. Do I like the music and all that stuff? Is the preaching funny and interesting? Are my kids happy all the time coming and wanting to come? Were people nice to me? And all those things, are they're good, they're important, they're helpful things. But all those evaluations melt in the background and become part of the scenery when we have our heart focused rightly, consecrated and prepared to worship and encounter the very presence of God. Even as Noel, who was speaking to us three weeks ago, said, part of our vineyard heritage is this idea of consecrating ourselves and expecting His presence to come in worship and times together. And and part of the heritage of the vineyard is is seeing God show up, not even when people are laying on hands and praying for people or not even related to the message. Just God shows up when we gather together and brings healing just out of the blue and comes just because we've consecrated ourselves and we come with the right expectation of encountering Him and the good He has for us that day. See, in order for God to do something in any area of my life, generally, I have to be spiritually ready to obey and receive. And that requires preparation on my part. But consecration isn't just involved with that. The story in Joshua goes on, and it's really long, so I'm just going to summarize and illustrate it for you. The people of Israel are facing a boundary right now. In one sense, they're going through what some people would call in life a boundary event in their life where they're leaving the past behind and they're walking into the new. But it is also a real physical sense of a boundary, the Jordan River. This has been, the Jordan River served as a major defensive barrier to the whole land. Anyone who controlled the the crossings to the river controlled the land and controlled the safety of the land. And as the people are consecrating themselves to God, God shows up and tells Joshua that he's going to establish his leadership and establish the promise to the people of Israel through miraculous events. And he says, this is how I want you to do it, Joshua. He says, I want you to tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant to the Jordan River and to step into the river. Now, just so we're all on the same page and we all understand what we're talking about, this Ark of the Covenant, what does that mean? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was this heavy gold chest. And it was both a symbol of God's presence, but God had also promised that it would be more than a symbol, that His very real presence would be powerfully present with that object in that day for the Israelites. And so the priests would never touch this chest. They would actually stick long poles in it and they would carry the chest on the poles. And, uh, and inside this chest there were stone tablets, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought off the mountain. So this is gold filled inside with stone. I mean, this is kind of heavy, right? And God gives Joshua simple enough instructions. He says to the priests, carry the ark, go stand in the water, and when you do, everyone else get up and begin to cross the river. Sounds really easy. No problem, Right? Except for the fact that the river is in flood stage at that point, the text says. The Jordan River is a river that starts at the snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon at over 7,000 feet. And it winds 200 miles through a valley down to the Dead Sea, which the surface of the water is the lowest surface of water on the face of the planet at 1,300 feet below sea level. This is quite a drop, and there's a lot of strong current along the Jordan River. Now, in modern times, the Jordan, Jordan and Israel take so much water out of this river for drinking and irrigation that it's like a, a smaller, tamer version. It's like the creek 
you know, it's not really the river that it used to be in one sense. But in ancient times, in, Jer- in the Jericho area, it normally ran during the normal part of the year, three to ten feet deep, and was about a hundred feet wide. And it ran through this valley or this ravine, additional ravine in the valley called the Ravine of Zor. And it was a cutout in the valley floor that ran 20 feet deeper than the main valley floor. And it was up to about 200 feet wide, right? But in flood season, this whole ravine would fill and it would spill out over the top onto the main valley floor up to about a half mile wide and be about 20 to 35 feet deep. I mean, that's as high as the top of the ceiling in this room, right? And imagine the priests, as Joshua tells them, to step into the muddy, rushing, flooding river. A river at flood stage. It might be shallow for a few feet, and then all of a sudden it drops off into the Zor Gorge and you're sitting in 20 feet of water. And uh, even if the road, even if they're walking on the road to the ford, I mean, it's going to have a steep decline into this raging river, carrying a big gold box filled with stone. That sounds pleasant, right? I mean, that's a recipe for sinking to the bottom. It's kind of scary. And there's a part of the question of this text is saying, is, have, you ever, have you ever stood on the edge of something really scary? Have you ever faced a really big, crucial meeting, a difficult, conflicted situation that was really critical to your future? Or have you ever gone into the unknown of launching something new that could also be potentially disastrous? Maybe for you, uh, you got a little bit of this feeling when you decided to go from being what we call a tipper, giving 20 to 50 bucks every now and then to the church, to being a tither and giving 10% of your income to the church as God asks us to do. Because you realize you couldn't say to God, I, I, you're truly Lord and I'd really trust you as a good provider, but I don't trust your promise to care for me and that just didn't fit. So you realize if you're really going to trust him, you've got to trust his command and obey it. And trust his promise as well and be generous and tithe. It can be scary to do what God asks us to do. Now, maybe it was something different. Maybe it was you stepping into a ministry leadership position around here or somewhere else and you knew, or, or maybe it's something that you feel like God's calling you to even right now that you, you haven't stepped into right now, but, but, but you just don't feel up to it or you didn't feel up to it. And you knew it would be uncomfortable risk, but you knew you had to do it if you were going to walk into the promise God, <coughs> pardon me, God has for you and have a hope of realizing the promises for your life. Or maybe it was praying for a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus or who's angry in God, or who was angry at God. And you needed to take the risk of a bad response in that relationship to even make room for God to show up and offer to pray for him. You see, your faith journey should sometimes lead you to the edge of where you feel afraid or uncertain. If your goal is to avoid those places, don't expect to see very many miracles because miracles are where danger is, where things seem difficult if not impossible. And God invites us to regularly put our foot in the water and see what he will do in the way of the miraculous. I mean, think about it. Joshua says to the people, watch the ark. When the priests carry it in and they step in the water, he says this. He says, the river is going to stop flowing. Really? A half mile wide, rushing river, 20 to 35 feet at flood stage. Water stop? 
So the priests carry the ark, step into the water, and the text reads and says this. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho, The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. I know this seems hard to believe. We actually have some really good historical evidence, though, to make us be more comfortable with the fact that this actually happened. There have been two proven times in history. See, there is an actual town, even to this day, called Adam, 16 miles upriver from Jericho. It's in an area where the gorge cuts so deep that, the, that it's surrounded by cliffs, mostly dirt cliffs, over a 100 feet high. And there have been multiple historical accounts of times when those cliffs were undercut during flood season and in one instance through the help of an earthquake and collapsed into the river and completely shut off the Jordan River. In 1267 and in 1546, there are multiple independent historical accounts of this happening. In 1267, the river was cut off for a total of 10 hours, completely dry during flood season. In 1546, the accounts range between one and three days, but as you read all the accounts together, the picture you get is it was probably about 26 or 30 hours spreading over the course of three calendar days that the river was completely stopped from flowing because these cliffs collapsed into the river. See, some miracles are miracles of God's timing. God caused the river to undercut the cliffs at the perfect time so that the instant the priests stuck their foot in the water, the water began to recede until it was nothing. And if you look into the next chapter, you see that the water was held up long enough so the entire nation of Israel crossed. So well-timed was the blockage at at Adam of the river that Joshua records immediately when the priests walked out of the Jordan, the water began to flow again and returned to flood stage. Can you imagine that picture? Priests carrying the ark out going, here comes the wall. Right? And they see it coming, immediately it goes back. Even crossing this picture, crossing the Jordan here is actually a picture of consecration as God's presence in the ark goes first. Putting God first. His presence and power leads us as a focal point. He is the person to whom we look for our marching orders in life. We move only with Him and always with Him. And as they worshiped God, God moved. Worshiping together brings us into God's presence, His miraculous presence. Yet within this, there's another lesson, and that's this. As a community, part of our consecration in worship is to make this intentional, predetermined choice to act on the promises of God. Even when it looks like we're going to drown, we step out and we step in and we trust God's promise and we worship Him. Follow wherever His presence leads us. Even when it doesn't make sense, we praise God for the answer before we see the answer. When God promises something, we worship Him as though it's already done. We give thanks for the promise being fulfilled even before it's fulfilled. Now, I know some have made this into a whole theology that denies reality. That's not what's going on here. 
This is not a denial of reality. We can still talk about the reality of our circumstances, but this is rather acknowledging with our life and our words and our actions the sureness of God's goodness and power and promise. Consecration includes an intentional, predetermined choice to act on the promises of God, no matter how unlikely or how impossible they look. One of the greatest missionaries of the past 200 years is a guy named James Hudson Taylor. A lot of people just refer to him as Hudson Taylor. He spent 50 years in China during the late 1800s, and he was really the first successful missionary to China. He was, he was the guy who is really truly credited with opening China to Christianity. And he also did missions in a way that impacted the way missions were done for the next 100 years. He was a really great man. He says this. He says, there are three stages in the work of God. Impossible, difficult, and done. We worship a God who created all that exists. And he wants to show up in a powerful ways that give us confidence. His promise and his love can be relied upon. And in so doing, he wants to give us together as the people of Quest shared stories of his miraculous power at work within us, which leads us to actually the final and maybe the most critical element of this consecration for worship and this preparation of what we do together when we come to worship. See, the text goes on and tells how Joshua appointed 12 men, one from each tribe of Israel, to go back into the river after the people had crossed, while the priests were still standing there, while it was still dry, and grab a stone from right around where the ark was and carry that stone out. And with it, they made these simple monuments, not at all unlike the one you're going to see on the Scripture slide that comes up here in a second. And God tells the people about the purpose of these stones when He says this in the Scripture. He says, In the future... When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. See, when we consecrate ourselves and intentionally gather for worship together as a church, we are to remember and share with one another our shared stories and miracles of God, to tell each other those stories, to remember how God's shown up and been real in our life, and to share those stories so that our children and our grandchildren can trust that God does show up, and when they face a difficult circumstance, they will step in and see the miracle of God as well. But we just need it for ourselves too, don't we? We need, to, we need that remembering on a regular basis for ourselves. See, I believe it's uh, no coincidence that this subject fell on today. I wish I could say we intentionally planned it for this subject of remembering to be today, but frankly, we just picked the serious topic and we figured out how many messages were there and then we slapped them on the calendar and just end up today. But I think God had an intention because we know as a society the importance of remembering, don't we? I mean, it's Memorial Day. We remember those who died to give us the freedom, the safety, the opportunity, the freedom of religion that we share and enjoy so much today. We even have our memorial stones, like, like Wendy mentioned, the field of heroes, the flags, the thousands of flags, and the plaques of dedication to our heroes. And we're reminded when we do this remembering that what we have is not just our own doing. But so much of it has been given to us by others at such a great cost. So we give thanks. 
And we humble ourselves in the face of that great cost that's been paid. And we remember why other people paid that cost and fought that fight to give us this gift. And we together take that why and take that humble thankfulness into shaping our future to preserve the good that we've been getting, we've been given. And the same is true, equally important level, regarding our, our, our relationship with God as well. We remember, we retell, we relive the stories, and, we rem- and that remembering propels us into the future to take the risk of faith of following God, to step on the edge of a raging river, believing God wants us to take us to the other side, and to step in to the miracle God wants to give us, that He's promised to give us. And that takes courageous choices, doesn't it, for all of us? It takes the courageous choice Joshua was teaching us to prepare ourselves to be intentional, to worship God even before miracles take place, even when we don't feel like we can worship Him because we haven't seen it. We still worship Him. And we step into the river even when it looks impossible, even when it looks dangerous. We also have to make the courageous choice of of having the discipline of gathering with the church to worship and remember and to have the courageous choice to share our stories honestly of how God has forgiven us and healed us and provided for us and, and all the miracles He's done in our lives and listening to the stories of others so that we remember and we give thanks and are strengthened by that memory of our shared experiences for the next time we face something difficult together. Because the lesson of the Jordan River is worshiping together brings us into God's miraculous presence. And God wants us to encounter the miraculous in our lives together. He wants the power of His presence to be the reason we know Him and follow Him and love Him and succeed in following Him. See, about 1,400 years later after this, where the Bible takes us back to this exact same place on the Jordan River, it's about two miles as the crow flies from Jericho. And John the Baptist, Baptist is there now baptizing people, calling people to repentance and to an experience of encountering God. And the religious leaders are coming to him wanting to be baptized, but they're not coming for the right reasons. They're coming because they want popularity and they see John stealing their authority and their popularity. And John sees this and here's what John says to them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, demonstrate to me your consecration, your true preparation to humble yourself, to confess your sins, to worship and encounter the living God and really truly follow Him. And he says, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. And John, when he's saying out of these stones, is pointing, if not to that same pile of 12 stones that we saw earlier in our Jericho story, if they were not still there by then, he's at least pointing to the stones that everybody can see right around them and pointing their memory back to the story, showing us the power of remembering even 1,400 years later to help us step in to the true life and power of God. And right after that, immediately after that, John baptizes Jesus. And Jesus' ministry starts a ministry of delivering the oppressed, of restoring sight to the blind, of the activity of the kingdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit breaking in among us. 
The ultimate step in freeing all of humanity from sin, leading us into God's promised land. It's a ministry marked with the miraculous. And the question is, what rivers has God brought us to where He's promised we're going to go through? The rivers that we need to leave something behind and we need to go on to something new. And we need to trust God for the impossible. See, here's the one thing I know from life. I have never regretted doing something scary, difficult, and risky for God. Risk is where the miracles are found. Every one of us is going to face certain rivers in life that we need to cross, that God has said we need to cross in order to realize His promise. And nothing exciting that requires faith, no miracles, no memories, are made standing safely on the bank of the river. Whatever that river it is, whether it's stepping into the sadness and anger of maybe a bad mistake you or someone else made that leaves you in a place where you need forgiveness to give or to receive. You need emotional and relational healing. And it's scary to face that. God wants to take you through that to a promised place of healing. Or maybe it's stepping into a bad diagnosis and the need for physical healing. And you need to face that. And God wants to show you how He's going to bring you through that. God is inviting us to consecrate ourselves together as the people of God at Quest. To not face these situations alone, but to face them together with each other here, the community of faith. Because worshiping together brings us into God's miraculous presence. See, together we walk into more miracles than we do when we do it alone. It's the way God designed it the way He intends church to be, to regularly encounter and see God move in power among us. Now, jumping into that river that seems impassable is certainly less scary, isn't it, when we do it with other people? I mean, we're more likely to follow God's leading to do so when we do it with others who are worshiping and seeking God as well. Because, frankly, there's sometimes when I don't personally have the, the, the strength or the will to keep walking into the next river. And you don't either. And you need people to come alongside you, to tell you their stories of God's faithfulness in the past, to remind you of the stories you've told them about how God showed up in your life in the past, and to walk you into that miracle, walk you into that river, carrying you in there. God is inviting us as individuals, and particularly as the community of faith, the people who are quest, to step more and more into experiencing His miraculous presence and power among us, into that which we cannot control. We can't make it happen on our own. But we nonetheless step out because of faith in God's promise, because He promises to pour out His Spirit on us, to lead us in a gospel that is not just talk and morality, but power. And when we do, what Joshua said will be true for us as well, that consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. How do we respond to that? I mean, responding to that maybe, maybe changing the way you view our times together. And you start thinking about coming, expecting to be one who God uses to give of His power and presence through prayer and through worship and through a word that you give to someone else or for you to encounter God personally more powerfully as we come together. Or maybe choosing to prepare yourself for God wants to do among us in other ways. Or learning to worship and expect God's presence to show up in recognizable ways more frequently. Just having a change in expectation. 
Maybe it's you're going to come and, and say, God, am I, do I get to be Joshua this morning where I get to say, here's where we're going and here's the miracle and here's how God's going to do it? Or, or am I the priest carrying the ark and I've got to put my foot in and lead the way? Or, 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 or today, do I just get to be part of the audience watching you do a miracle and celebrate and enjoy? And for some of us, it may mean responding to God's invitation to prioritize being here more regularly because worshiping together brings us into God's miraculous presence. And we don't want to miss it. Would you just begin to respond right now in worship, in your own way, in your own words? You can shout it if you want. You can whisper it if you want. But, but, but do it verbally. Just begin to respond and invite the Holy Spirit to come and have His way among us. Ask, Lord, we just ask You that You would come. Holy Spirit, come. We don't want this experience, our time together, to be just about the words I say or the music that's played or, or what makes us feel a certain way. But Lord, we want it to be all about You. We want our lives to be all about You. Would You come in the power of Your Spirit? Would You teach us what it means to be filled with Your Spirit and to be used by Your Spirit to do miraculous things? Miraculous things that show Your promise to be true, that show Your goodness to be right and good. Come, Holy Spirit. As we finish and continue to worship, I want to invite you into this next song. It's called Healing is in God's Hand. And whether you need physical healing, whether you need emotional healing, spiritual healing, relational healing, healing of a strained relationship, or, or whether, you're, whether your big concern is healing of our culture, our city, our schools, our nation, the song declares that healing is in His hands. And allow yourself as we sing the song, you can stay seated, you can sing, you can stand, whatever you want, or you can just listen to it to remember, begin remembering the stories that you've heard, your own stories and other people's stories of God's power, His miraculous power coming. And use this song to invite you to step in to the moment that God's doing right now because He's here and He wants us to encounter Him. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.